I'm speaking to Dr. Ida Corley from the School of English Media and Theatre Studies at Inuai Maynooth. Ida, can I begin by asking you to tell us about Kinsarawiwa's status within Nigerian literature? Hi, Helen. Ken Sarawiwa would have come of age in the late 50s, early 60s, when Nigeria won independence in 1960. He was not among the first generation of African writers who wrote in the English language. He would have come a little bit later than that. The first generation were primarily interested in correcting the record that European writers had established in relation to Africa in English language texts. So they were always challenging the ideas about Africa that had been promoted by Europeans. The second generation looked forward to change. They expected large-scale social change once independence had been won. But unfortunately, they were faced with the realities that although the face of Nigerian politics had changed, there were now an elite class of blacks in power. The economic and social structures of colonialism had remained in place. So these writers became more concerned. They were looking inwards and they were looking at life in the post-colonial era, the era just after decolonization. And a large number of those writers became disillusioned. Um, so we have a tradition that is sometimes known as the, the era of post-colonial disenchantment or the, the literature of disenchantment. Sarah Wewa really stands out because he never succumbed to despair or to depression about what was happening. He always wanted to write for Nigerians. He didn't try to project an image of Africa outward. A lot of writers who were writing in English were writing for an international audience. So they were writing to Western readers in the US, in Europe. Sarah Wewa was always concerned to write a literature that was about Nigerians for Nigerians. And he wrote across a whole range of different genres. He wrote journalism, he wrote poetry, he wrote short stories, he wrote children's books, he wrote plays, he wrote TV dramas, he wrote novels, uh, he wrote political tracts, sort of histories, he collected oral tales. So he really was writing for a whole lot of different Nigerian readers and he was really concerned to address what was going on in Nigeria in in very constructive ways. Often he wrote to entertain and his goal was to entertain, to amuse, while also kind of delivering some kind of instruction or some kind of eye-opening lesson in his his writing in some way. You say Sarawiwa wrote for Nigerians. Why did he decide to write in English rather than in his native tongue, Kana? That's a good question, Helen. The the borders of Nigeria were established by British colonial administration. So when this was happening, they carved up the population. They didn't, the borders weren't decided based on where different groups of people lived. It wasn't about the cultures or languages in Nigeria. It was really about British economic interests. So The post-colonial state incorporated a whole lot of different language groups. There were three major groups, the Hausa, the Igbo and the Yoruba, but there were also over 250 distinct dialects spoken, other languages effectively. And Sarawiwa came from a group of people that in the colonial era became known as the Rivers people. They were 
small populations who lived around the, the Niger Delta, often with very different and distinct histories and traditions. He was one of the Kana. Uh, he spoke Kana, which was one of the languages of the Ogoni. The Ogoni spoke uh, several different languages. Only about 100,000 people spoke Kana. So Sarawiba himself said at one point, if he wrote in Kana, he would be addressing potentially only 100,000 readers. Many of those people couldn't read anyway. They did not have access to a kind of a proper education or a formal education. They would have had rich oral traditions. So he chose to write in English primarily because it gave him access to a much wider readership. You know, there was a precedent for doing that, that in the era of colonialism, when Africans were trying strategies for getting past the British strategies of divide and conquer, they formed a tradition in the English language from about the 19th century. So there was a tradition of African writing in English stemming from the 19th century, and he was taking part in that. And it was about trying to break down ethnic divisions and ethnic particularity, and about sort of trying to come together and forge a kind of modern Africa that would allow people to to adapt some of the cultures, uh, you know, technologies and cultures from Europe, from the Black Americas, into a, a very modern sort of future-oriented Nigeria, while also kind of holding on to, and a lot of these writers use strategies for holding on to elements of their indigenous cultures that they admired and wanted to retain, in, in, you know, in some way, so translate, you know. Um, Sarawiwa himself referred to his novel Sosa Boy as a novel in rotten English. Can you tell us a little bit about <laughs> what rotten English was and why he decided to use that? Yeah, it's a very clever, you know, Sarawiwa's amusing expression, rotten English. If we look at the title of the novel itself, Sosa Boy, it means, if we translate it into standard English, soldier boy. Nigerian pigeon uses the term soja boy with a J. Uh, so that's deviation from uh, soldier boy. A soza boy is a deviation from this deviation. It is the particular uh, word used in and around Bori in uh, Ogoni land where Sarawiwa uh, himself grew up. So Sarawiwa, what he was doing was trying to reflect the language. In some ways, he was reflecting the language the kinds of English that were, were spoken by detribalized, urbanized youth who would have moved from rural areas where they had in indigenous languages and traditions, had grown up among these indigenous cultures into urban contexts where they were mixing with lots of different people from different ethnic backgrounds and using English as a bridge to overcome their differences. And the English that they used itself was a very fluid, flexible kind of English. It incorporated maybe grammatical structures and words from African languages. So the language that uh, Sarawiwa wrote in was in a way an effort to capture that in writing. He didn't actually write as if he was speaking. It would be very difficult to accurately transcribe the spoken language of a people and to accurately represent the deviations of this particular group of speakers. So partly his goal was political, that he was really criticising the ways in which the elites who uh, had 
had very good educations and spoke standard English, used clean English and created an image of themselves as clean and authoritative, even as they were promoting policies that were introducing pollution and various kinds of conflict into their own social environments. So he was satirising, you know, he was in a way saying the inconsistencies that he was exploring were in, in a sense an effort on his part to attack the idea of the sorts of ideas of, of standards and cleanliness that were being promoted by the elite. You know, he was criticising that. He was embracing the cultures of the poor, the idea of sort of, you know, rottenness and brokenness as something t- that was kind of more lively and something that could be in some ways embraced um, rather than kind of conforming to the, the status quo and being obedient. You know, so he was deliberately being a bit rebellious by choosing to write in in broken English, in rotten English, as he called it. Thank you. Sosa Boy tells the story of the Nigerian Civil War, known to a lot of Irish people as the Biafran War, from the point of view of a young soldier. Sarawiwa wrote another book on a darkling plane about the Nigerian Civil War. Can you tell us a little bit about the approach you took in that book? On a Darkling Plain really is a memoir. I think the Nigerian Civil War was a very complex set of events and there was huge tragedy. There was huge loss of life. Over 90 million people died during the war, most of them Igbo. The causes of the war are still a source of conflict, you know, among historians. And I think for Sarawiwa, he needed to explain partly his own actions and choices made during the war, but also to just contribute to the history. You know, he wrote the memoir. It was completed within a year or two of the war ending, but he didn't actually publish it until later because it was still quite sensitive, you know, some of the things he wrote about. What is maybe interesting about Sarawiwa's own choices was that he opposed the secession of Biafra, the Biafran state. You know, he became an administrator for the federal forces during the war. He left the east uh, so that he wouldn't be conscripted into the Biafran army and, and took up a role as an administrator during the war. Now, his reasons for doing that were that he himself felt that secession was a strategy developed by the Igbo elite to grab oil resources for themselves. Uh, He wasn't actually convinced, you know, the Biafran war was caused in part by the sort of uh, conflict over oil and gas resources in the Niger Delta. Sarawiwa was not convinced that that the Igbo elite would uh, would provide a better um, distribution of wealth than, than was already being provided by the Nigerian government. So And he felt that uh, secession would not necessarily enrich his own people, the Ogoni. He thought that the the Igbo majority themselves, the maybe the the working class Igbo weren't wouldn't stand to gain anything either. He really just assumed that this would benefit a small group of Igbo elite. Um, So he opposed secession on the grounds that it really would lead to 
conflict on the basis of ethnic identity, ongoing conflicts. And he really was promoting the idea of of a pan-African, a pan-Nigerian nation that would not judge people by their background, by their ethnic heritage, but would look, would try to distribute resources and education equitably. So that's why he opposed the war. And this is partly what he was writing about, was to kind of explain his, his own position during the war. Thank you. There are two novels about the war, but there was a much lighter side to Sarawiwa as a writer also. He wrote television series and also children's books. Would you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, as I say, um, Sarawiwa, um, I suppose another part of his career, the history of his career, was that after uh, the oil crisis, uh, a st- severe austerity measures were introduced by the Nigerian government and there was a shortage of books and so on. And Sarawiwa was concerned about the lack of access to books for Nigerian children. And, and so he often wrote books that had, as I said, they were entertaining, they were comical and they had a kind of light moral uh, lesson, you know, to be delivered. Bazzi and Company was his TV drama, which he started writing in 1985, and it aired for five years up until 1990 on Nigerian television weekly and to millions of viewers. Started airing in 1990 and then just concluded in 1995. His, he then translated the series into children's books for, for young readers, uh, probably, you know, young teens. One of his themes was usually the, the con man who, the con uh, act that goes wrong or the con man who actually cons himself out of some kind of good fortune, you know. So he was interested in showing the ways in which dishonesty and uh, apparent cleverness actually can double back on itself and undo itself. So, for instance, he uh, he would write stories about villagers who would not want maybe the lack of hygiene in their village to be revealed to inspectors. And so they would go out of their way to trick the inspector and bribe the inspector into not seeing maybe problems with sanitation and then the inspector would leave and the village would never get the funds they needed for the sanitation. So he would try to show the kinds of the ways in which, as I say, cleverness can, there's, there's just too, too many levels of cleverness. And that, that was also part of his own sense of humour was the, the irony of things like, of those kinds of stories that he appears to have enjoyed very much, you know. He also tried to capture then some of the, the comical ways in which English was used. So, you know, he would look at local popular culture and incorporate expressions from popular culture into his stories. So he would have his narrator address his readers as yours sincerely. You know, he would say, um, I'm telling you yours sincerely. Uh, you know, this really happened. You know, so he had these these funny expressions that would have been drawn from local magazines and agony ants and things like that. And he enjoyed kind of reflecting that in, in literature that was a little bit more serious, you know. In these children's stories, there was also uh, a moral lesson to be learned, really. Sarawiwa, of course, also wrote poetry. And can you give some insights perhaps into the themes and style of poems uh, written by Ken Sarawiwa? Well, he published uh, Songs in a Time of War. I suppose this is most well-known book of poems. And um, I think that he actually tried to publish that with Longman. And I suppose 
for them, it wasn't appealing enough to their Western readership. You know, they were uh, an educational publisher. And it was at that point that he decided to set up his own publishing company in Nigeria. So it was, in, an, in a way, his, own, his attempt to publish his own poetry that led him to set up his own indigenous publishing company. You know, having sent his poems to a few readers, he was convinced of the worth of them. I suppose what differentiates Songs in a Time of War from other poems that Sarah Wee wrote or from other writers who wrote about the war were the uh, the kind of tenderness. Um, writers like Achebe or Shoyinka or J.P. Clark, who wrote about the war in poetry, often wrote very angry poetry, angry, despairing poetry. Sarawiwa seems to have turned inward a little at this point, which was unusual for him, to write poetry about love at this point, about human relationships, to write about tenderness and to kind of try to find moments of beauty in wartime, even as, you know, he was reflecting similar themes as the other writers that war was unnatural and and talking about the destruction all around. There is this kind of strain of love poetry running through his poems, which is unusual and I suppose speaks in some ways to his generosity of heart, you know, and the, the thing that characterises Sarawi but continuously is his efforts to communicate with people to con- and not to despair and not to give up, you know. And indeed, in terms of communicating with people, Sarawiwa wrote a detention diary and this covered one of his periods in captivity. Do you want to say a few words about that? Yeah, I I think it's really a mark of his achievement that, uh, you know, he was imprisoned for two years leading up to his execution. He was only allowed very limited access to family and friends. You know, he had been a a writer, a speaker, a public figure, and suddenly all his access to this audience was cut off. And he managed somehow to keep writing. You know, his detention diary, it was really an attempt to explain how he ended up in prison in some ways and what his cause was, what he was fighting for and to justify his own actions, which, you know, history tells us were the correct actions to take in the sense that he was trying to uh, highlight terrible corruption and terrible environmental devastation but so he provides in his detention diary uh, some of the history of the Agoni and their lands and then talks about how he himself became involved in the struggle to protect their lands and to protect their access to clean water and to farming and to the the cultures that had grown up around the environment in which they lived, you know. But it also tells us what happened to him when he was arrested. So it gives us some of the details of the politics of the of the moment. Interesting for us that Sarawiwa, even as he was cut off, found ways to make his voice heard, used his writing to allow his concerns to be voiced all over the world, you know, even having been locked up in a small box, basically. Inuai Manuth has received the detention letters that can Sarawiwa wrote to Fermanagh-born Sister Magella McCarran and also a collection of his poems. How do you see yourself as a lecturer in the Department of English using some of this material? 
Well, the letters are very interesting in and of themselves, in part because the detention diary ends in sort of late 1993. The letters cover the period after that, 1994, um, up until a, a few months before his execution in 1995. So they'd give us more of a picture of what was going on in his mind, of his ongoing activities and strategies, his energy as a writer. They show us how he started, you know, his how his thinking had changed over the course of his career in the sense that he really became very aware that there were other groups like the Agoni. He was a businessman. He was not he did not start his life as a socialist, as an anti-capitalist. He was a businessman and he was really poised to see what was happening when multinational capital had such mobility. And he understood that it wasn't just the 100,000 Agoni who were affected by this mobility of capital. There were other small groups in other parts of the world and added together, these groups made up millions and millions of people and a huge percentage of the population of the globe. So he started to, to think of himself as a spokesperson for minority peoples rather than just for the Agoni or just for Nigerians. And we see that in, in his letters. So it's, it's interesting to see how he uses the letters to see his own relationships, you know, to, to describe his relationships to his own people and to imagine how other groups who are dispossessed of their voices and their histories might find ways to come together around issues like resources and resource conflicts. For our students at Maynooth, we approach literary texts in, in lots of different ways. Our undergraduates look sometimes at, at war fiction and at post-war fiction. And for Sarah Wiwa, he, you know, he described the conflict around oil as maybe an an unusual kind of war, an unorthodox kind of war. He understood himself to be at war. So it's interesting for the students to learn that war takes different forms, that, that people can be undergoing a kind of genocide, as he put it, even though there aren't any weapons necessarily being used, or at least the weapons are not conventional weapons, right? You know, we can teach Sosa Boy, we can, the students can go and look at the letters and get a better understanding of how writers might use language to, to criticise the abuses of language that occur at the level of politics and, um, you know, uh, bureaucracy and so on. Other students might study Sarah Wiwa in the context of post-colonial traditions. So we think of the ways in which writers coming out of colonial contexts struggle to create new identities for their people. Identities that are not, you know, they don't just assimilate to modern Western standards. They need to hold on to the values and the the some of the, the storytelling traditions and so on of their own cultures, but translate them into writing, right? So these are oral stories translated into writing. And we see this a lot in Sarah Wiwa's writing. We see him use genres like satire and allegory um, that are derived from the oral tradition and oral folk tales and update them and deploy them in modern contexts, in the context of corruption in the office or high society life in urban areas and things like that. The letters allow also 
some insight into the process of life writing. You know, how does he create and reflect a self? And the letters are quite moving insofar as you see Sarawiwa not just as a political figure. There is a danger sometimes of seeing a figure like Sarawiwa just as, you know, an icon, an iconic figure, a martyr figure, a kind of disembodied, you know. This gives him a human face. You have a sense of the, the cost of the sacrifices he made his connections with family and the fact that he was an, an embodied person who who loved, who ate, who had to sort out his bills and, his, you know, his insurance. And so, you know, you understand the the, the fact that he was situated, that his, he had a perspective that came from a certain kind of environment that he knew well and the importance for our students of of learning about those contexts, you know, of, of learning, not just assuming that everybody, you know, has the same experience, but of, of learning about different cultural contexts and the fact that the choices, you know, maybe things that work in the West, laws, policies that, that work in the West may need to be rethought when they are introduced into post-colonial contexts with regard to local allegiances, local histories and local problems. And this is what Sarawiwa was about, you know, working hard to think through issues in order to create a, a democratic society in which everybody could participate and used his writing to do that. And of course, the letters, many of them are handwritten. So there is a a type of engagement perhaps the students can have with these letters that perhaps print a book, for example, doesn't offer. Exactly. I mean, I think when students see texts, they read a lot of texts over the course of their three-year arts degree. And so books come to them off bookshelves and they don't see themselves maybe as writers necessarily. They see themselves as students. If they go and they look at letters and they see handwriting, it's handwriting, they can use handwriting or they, and they start to realise the humanness. And it actually gives them inspiration that it's not just that they see that he was human, but then it allows them to imagine themselves as writers and to it gives them a role model in lots of ways, a way, you know, if they, they know that he was a writer, he had an interest in an, a citizen of Ireland, uh, that she had, Magella McCarran, uh, had such an interest in Nigeria and was able to participate in such a constructive way in the activities that Ken was involved in. And so for the students, it's very inspiring to see these physical letters um, and to see the, the kind of friendship and exchange and the outcome of that. And that can inspire them to maybe go on either to, to try and get their own writing published or to become involved in in activities and movements that are promoting, you know, environmental justice and poverty reduction. And of course, there's a wonderful link between the Ogoni and Ireland in Sarawiwa's poem for Sister Magellan McCarran, where he talks about her Ogoni and his Fermanagh. It is lovely, the sentiment that Sarawiwa expresses there. I think he understood that Magella well understood what was happening in Agoniland in part because she had herself some experience of sectarian divisions in Northern Ireland. So Magella understood that these histories were shaped by global colonial politics. I think some of the myths that the media circulate sometimes are that there are 
tribal conflicts that exist since time immemorial that are impossible to eradicate. And what we see when we see the connections between Magellas growing up in Fermanagh and, and Ken growing up in Ogoniland are that but in both contexts, the conflict among the local people is created by these colonial structures and colonial borders colonial economic structures. And so this was the basis for Ken's claim that it was his Fermanagh and Magellan's Agoni land, that he knew that they both shared this understanding that there is no really such thing as atavistic tribal conflict. These problems occur because of considered decisions that are made often at, at top levels, and that they, uh, because they were made, they can also be unmade, that things can be changed. And that was part of the sentiment um, in that expressed in that poem. And also to shake hands with other minority groups around the world. And that he was stretching out a hand to Magella. And that in itself is a way of stretching out a hand to other minority groups in Europe, but also in Africa and in, in other parts of the world, in South America, in Asia, where people are experiencing similar kinds of uh, dispossession as a result of lack of access to political representation, but also dispossession of lands and resources happening as a result of political structures and not as a result of histories of difference that are impossible to eradicate, you know. So, Dr. Ida Corley, the Kinsarawiwa Archive offers many different opportunities for research and study to students both in Inuai Maynooth and beyond. Absolutely. And, you know, Sarawiwa was very uh, far-seeing in the sense that, you know, he drew attention to resource conflicts in ways that transcended ideas about national identity and belonging. So these, his writings and his example provide lessons for people who are interested in resource issues globally, as well as to researchers who are interested in the histories of Nigerian writing, of African writing in English, of Creole writing, invented languages. We have a lot of new writers, like, for instance, maybe Brian Chikwava would be a recent example of a Zimbabwean writer who invented a language in order to describe writing in indigenous languages is perhaps a little too backward looking. Writing in English is assimilating, you know, using language in these creative ways that can reflect the histories of these people, the brokenness, but also the, the bridges. So it's really a wonderful thing that we have these letters in the library, so immediate to give us a really concrete sense of, of his life. Thank you very much, Dr. Corley, for such an insight into this rich and diverse collection.